Christos Anaste. Christ is risen. Alethinos. Hallelujah works. It's fine. It's true. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his garment white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He's not here. For he has risen just as he had said. Come see the place where he was lying. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you into Galilee. And there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Let's stand. If uh, you are, <laughs> if you are new to faith, and you happen to have a liturgical church background, right now you're like, <laughs> we were. I was talking uh, at <laughs> right before church started. I, heavy theological discussion about fainting goats. <laughs> yeah, right. No, we, we're seriously. And I think some. <laughs> Some of you, when you're standing there, I picture you just kind of going, it's like, wow, sorry about that. Yeah, oh my goodness. Um, We had a big day yesterday here with the Easter explosion, as we called it. We uh, we and two other churches uh, joined together to do an outreach to our community. Um, anyone here this morning who was awake at 3.40? Okay, the reason I'm asking is to say, one, I'm sorry, but should have tweeted me or something. And, um, yeah, so I was laying there, you know, Saturday nights are always horrid sleeping and Sunday morning, and actually every night of the week is, but anyway, especially when I know, you know, church is the next morning. So I'm laying there, and it's 3.40 because I just looked at the clock, and I'm trying to tell myself, you will go to sleep, dude. And I'm laying there, and we are in a uh, an attic bedroom. Okay, it's converted, and our house starts going. Seriously, dude. And I'm sitting there thinking, I think there's an earth tremor going on right now. And I'm like, I think the stone just got rolled away. You know, God's doing this divine drama or something. But anybody else feel anything? Maybe it was just my. No, it wasn't just my indigestion. Okay. Okay, wait. You guys don't sit here. You sit over there. This is going to mess up everything. What are you trying to do to me? I want to pray. <laughs> Lord in heaven, oh, we're so just happy to be here in your presence, the joy of what the resurrection means. Thank you for bringing us to this place. Let your spirit be here in such a unique and special way to minister specifically to each and every individual that's here. You know them intimately. And so I pray, accomplish your purposes and plans for today, even as we rejoice and celebrate your love for us. In Jesus' incredible name, amen. Well, I remember, and this is, this is, this is really, this is, this is <laughs> boy, see, you guys got to move. Um, 
I've had this thought numerous times in my pilgrimage as a Christian from infancy up to where I am today. And that is, why in heaven's name did God decide that he would send Jesus the Savior to our planet at such a primitive time that he sent him? When you think about the magnitude of importance of all that Jesus came to do and to say and, and all that, what, to me it just would make more sense that at least, you know, maybe if he'd come, say, at least in the, you know, the, the early 20s, 30s, when there was at least a telegraph or telegrams and, you know, some kind of quasi-mass uh, communication instead of just really word of mouth and what people could scribble down and take from town to town, person to person, and then now catapult up to our present day. And it was something that Pastor Brent said to, to uh, advance Sundays ago. And he made the comment, and I wish I could remember the context, but he made the comment that Jesus wasn't tweeting. Okay? That's, that's all I know. That's all I took away from that message. Sorry. but I, And I was like, Jesus wasn't tweeting. And that, but that got me thinking, and it got my mind kind of wandering and musing on that again. And it's like, yeah, God, you know, if Jesus had come today, are you kidding me? With Facebook and Twitter and just social media and email. And now, I mean, we can see events around the world taking place in real time as they are happening. And I thought, wouldn't that made so much more sense and it would have been so much more efficient. And, but of course, you know, I'm not God, in case you haven't noticed Glad Barb wasn't here. She shouted amen in the first service when I said that. No, she didn't. She Well, I was thinking then about, okay, you're seeing the upside in your puny little mind of thinking through this, why did Jesus come when he did? And then it dawned on me that just a couple years ago, a brand new buzz phrase entered almost daily, if not conversation, at least, you know, in the media. And you see it in print or you hear it on the, on, uh, from, from uh, talk people or whatever. And that's the phrase, fake news. And so I got thinking along those lines, and I got thinking about somebody in high places who likes to tweet a lot. Um, and I was thinking about all of that, and I was like, you know what? Yeah, if, if Jesus had come, and if he was tweeting... How would we know, first of all, that it, one, it was really Jesus who was tweeting, and now that all that brings only on a global basis? And then again, if somebody was retweeting, and I'm, I've been on Twitter almost since the inception, and I made put nine tweets on there in all those years. Um, I don't use it a lot, because once it got through the number of letters, which I understood, then all of a sudden videos, and uh, so anyway, yeah, focus. So thinking about Twitter and everything is, I thought, okay, so if people are retweeting, they could retweet what Jesus said. Oh, you know what? We just got this tweet from Jesus, and here's what he said. Only there'd be some modifications maybe or some edits or some embellishments of what he actually tweeted or outright fabrication. And so I thought, hmm, you know what? Yeah, I guess I guess that I'm not saying that's why God sent Jesus when he did, but, you know, that was kind of uh, helping me to, to make sense of that all. But... I remember going back now 24 years, it would be 1994, I think, when the movie Forrest Gump came out. And I was, I was honestly enthralled. Just one, I, I think Tom Hanks is a, an incredible actor. 
But I was also utterly enthralled and actually a little disturbed by the technology, and this was 24 years ago of the day, of the things that they were doing to mash up you know, what was supposed to be Forrest Gump and meeting with dignitaries and Dick Cavett's show and all sorts of stuff. Let me show you what I mean. (sighs) So now we know how Watergate broke into the news, right? So you remember the, uh, it's it's kind of an, an axiom, and that is believing is seeing. And as I'm watching the different vignettes in there and Tom Hanks meeting with uh, 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 Kennedy and uh, with Nixon and then the, remember the, the whole ping pong thing when he was practicing? I mean, I'm sitting there going, okay, I know this is trick photography or whatever it is, but, you know, he's just there going, just like that. All right, sound effects. And I remember watching that and beginning, starting to think then now, you know what? Now, not only is hearing not believing, but now seeing is not believing. And I started to think about all the illicit things that could be done now with this new technology. Because all of a sudden, you know, you turn on your TV and it's like, here's the late-breaking news. And you're watching something happen in in your hometown or around the world, across the country, of, of monumental significance, and it's entirely fake. But you're like, no, I saw whoever standing there. You know, and he did this and he said that to this guy. And you can't believe it anymore. And so, honestly, I thought, wow, that's crazy. I mean, think now about coming forward to our day, 24 years, and think how the, the technology has only improved from what it was 24 years ago and the things that could be done in such a convincing and compelling way. How many of you know Roy Orbison? Know the name? Okay. Yeah. A little older clientele in here this, uh, this later service. Yeah, I asked somebody <clears throat> who shall remain nameless. I said, so do you know who Roy Orbison is? I said, okay, you know the song Pretty Woman? Oh, yeah. Well, that was Roy Orbison. Oh, yeah. Some of you are still going, what? Pretty woman, I don't believe you. You're not the truth. No one could look as good as you. Now, wait. The best part's coming. Best part's coming. Wait. Mercy. There you go. I had to get that in there. All right, why, why, why am I mentioning that? Because I have no idea where I'm at in my notes. No, because in 1988, Roy Orbison died. Now, why do I say that? Yeah, okay, good, big deal. Roy Orbison, as of this month, April, is on tour in the United Kingdom. I kid you not. And a, <laughs> one fan, and... A company called uh, Holographic Technology is putting this on. And you buy tickets to a concert and you'll see Roy Orbison and his music and everything else. Now, wasn't it just uh, two Super Bowl Sunday half times ago when Prince showed up, who was also dead? Okay, you see what I'm saying? Believe, seeing is not believing anymore. So I was thinking of all of that and again just reiterates to me that God knows what he's doing and Jesus didn't come at a less than ideal time in history, which is why we are told by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 that at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Well, over 900 years, 930 plus years, before Jesus willingly stepped down 
from his heavenly abode. God's people in the day demanded a king so that they could be like all the other nations around them. Never mind the fact that their current king was none other than Jehovah, Adonai, the Lord, the omnipotent creator, sovereign, master of the universe. He was their king. Oh, but the surrounding nations, they had an earthly king that they could see and they could touch and they could converse with him. And so they had to have an earthly king to lead them and to rule them and to protect them. Hey, no offense, God. Even though you've always been there, you've always been very faithful in everything else. You're amazing, you're awesome, you're miraculous. But perhaps it is just that element of our human nature that they are thinking, yeah, God has been great, but we've had our share, actually more than our share of personal tragedies and even of national calamity. So maybe we would benefit from a strong, good-looking symbol of a king who is physically present when we need him in our midst. And so God gave them exactly what they wanted in the man Saul, or at least what they thought they wanted. Well, once they had their own king, it was announced to them that having a new king changes nothing as far as what you're hoping to get out of it, that is to to be able to live peaceably and to be able to live prosperously. And so Samuel, who's the high priest of the day and the one attached by God to do the official installation of Saul as the king, Samuel, the high priest, gives them a friendly reminder that their change in leadership, in a manner of speaking, changes nothing in relation to what God's answers are for living a life peaceably and prosperously. Samuel declares to them, referring to Saul, (laughs) Therefore, here's the king whom you've chosen, whom you have asked for, and behold, the Lord has set a king over you. You see, Samuel's intent here is to say that what you've just done is not only stupid, but it's also meaningless. And in fact, it's not going to bring you what you think it's going to bring you. It's not going to bring you peace and prosperity. And implicit in Samuel's words that he's going to speak to them is a sober reminder that the one who is blessed and the nation who is blessed is the one who truly has the Lord God Almighty, as their king. Samuel says, Now therefore, uh, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reign over you will follow the Lord your God. And this doesn't mean paying lip service to him or giving him that obligatory uh, hat tip and a wink. Every once in a while. It means actually living in a way that would honor him for who he is as king of the universe and king over your lives. What follows in this passage in 1 Samuel are the practical consequences of God's people not living for God as king and creator of their very lives. So let's understand now and remind ourselves that God is outside of time. And so God has never taken aback. He's never caught off guard. He knew full well that since Eden, that our natural instinct is to always kick against God's claim over our lives. He tells us in his word, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, 
Paul writing, paraphrasing the Old Testament prophet Isaiah's words in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, Paul says, there's none righteous, there's not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. This is God's assessment of mankind. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. Okay, I get it. The poison of asps is under their lips. Stop! whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. In the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Man, oh man. If that doesn't drive you into a Bob Wiley moment, you're like, who? What about Bob? I feel good. I feel great. I feel wonderful. I feel good. I feel great. I feel wonderful. Obviously, not a lot of Bill Murray fans here. (laughs) The Lord's standard of goodness, not our culture standard, not our individual standard, but the Lord's standard of goodness is based on nothing less than utter, absolute, unsullied perfection. And because of sin, Paul writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. And when Adam and Eve made that choice to reject God's clear counsel for their life back in the Garden of Eden, choosing instead to do what they wanted to do, what happened was all hell broke loose Literally. For it was then, at that early outset, that sin entered the world. And again, remember, God is outside of time. He already had the remedy for that predicament that will affect, and is affecting still, humankind, and will until the end, till Jesus returns. God already knew what the remedy was and already had it in place and all situated. And that would be that there was going to be a coming one who would be savior of the world. But until Jesus the savior came, God mercifully instituted a system of sacrifice. And the system of sacrifice and all the attendant rituals with it was a very bloody ordeal by intention for two reasons. First of all, it was to temporarily cover the abundance of sinful failings of God's people. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, says the word. And so God set up this very temporary situation to temporarily withstand or withhold rather God's hand of wrath that is natural of his perfect nature against ungodliness. And now unless you're sitting there thinking about sin, because sin is really a term that's passe, unfortunately, you almost never hear it in our culture. And if you do, it's used inappropriately about the only things that are sinful anymore is perhaps uh, throwing the trash out your window of your car, driving a gas-guzzling vehicle, or owning a gun. Sin, biblically defined, is not just murdering people, 
It's not just robbing or stealing from people or beating people or anything like that. Sin is any disregard for God's wisdom and counsel and directives for life. It's not a big thing. I mean, it is a big thing, but it's not a big thing to sin. Let's go back to the fall for a second. There's Adam and Eve, the only two human beings created perfectly. Remember, both of them were brought into existence by hand by God. There's a reason I'm I'm articulating that and emphasizing it. So they come into the world absolutely sinlessly perfect. And so God says, I've created this new basically world for you. We're going to call it Eden. And it's a place of complete bliss. And you are, you, as you're experiencing right now, God speaking to them, you're having this, this, I mean, you know, uh, very personal, intimate relationship. We're talking back and forth, just like a man talks to another person and everything else. So here's my rules for the garden. You can do this and you can do this and you can go here and you can go there and you can do that and you can do this and you can do that and you can do that and you can do that and I want you to enjoy that and you're going to have fun doing this and you can do that and you can do that. You can do all these things, but the one thing you can't do is to eat of the fruit of the tree of good and knowledge, a good and evil. The knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you will become like God. Now, it wasn't like God was suffering an inferiority complex here. And it's like, oh, you can't eat that. You'll be like me. No, what he meant was is you will have this panacea now of, of not only good, but of evil, which was foreign. It was totally, totally foreign to them or anything else because there was no sin in the world. And so God was saying, here's how you get the most out of life. Do all this. Just don't do this one thing because it won't be good for you. And we read that Eve saw the fruit. Satan is now on the scene. And Satan starts taking the very words of God and just tilting them enough to make them used for his purposes. And so Eve's looking at the fruit and going, boy, <laughs> looks awfully good. Looks really delicious. I mean, look at all his other fruit and everything else. Yeah, but that one, you know. Mm. And so she ends up taking it and eating it in direct opposition to God's loving wisdom for life. And then here comes, oh, numbskull brain. Hey, Eve. And Eve says, have you tried this? This is really good. And he goes, okay. And he eats it. He disobeys God as well. And now in the language of Scripture and theology, sin entered the world and the world was turned upside down as it is to this day and will be until Jesus returns and there is a new heaven and a new earth. Now all of a sudden where insects were not a problem, pestilence was not a problem, there was no fungus in the gardens, there were no weeds that they had to worry about, all of those things are a result of the fall of mankind when sin entered the world. There was no death in the world, none. Not among insects, not among the animal world. Animals weren't attacking animals, there were no carnivores, everything was there. Mosquitoes could land on you and you'd go, hey buddy, how you doing? Buzz off. And he'd go fly on, Whatever. All of it was upended. And now Adam and Eve knew that there was this thing called evil. And what happens from that day forward is that sin 
is transmitted genetically for illustrative purposes from Adam and Eve to everyone who comes from Adam and Eve, which is everyone. Meaning, Adam and Eve had to disobey God in order to become sinners. But now that we have inherited sin from them, the teaching of clear teaching of Scripture is that we come into the world already tainted, already sinful, and thus the punishment of sin, which is death, is upon all of mankind. The first purpose of the sacrificial system was to temporarily cover the abundance of the sinful failings of God's people. The Bible says all have sinned now because of, or because of Adam and Eve and come short of the glory of God. The second reason for the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was that it was a living pictorial foreshadowing the good news It was meant to foreshadow the coming of the sacrifice of all sacrifices that would be so complete, so perfect, so powerful that it would remove the stain and the eternal consequences of sin once for all who believe and for all time. The consequence of physical death, the wages of sin is death. Physical death, which we are all familiar with, all too familiar with but also spiritual death, which we're not necessarily all that familiar with. In the language of God's inspired, infallible, and errant authoritative word, spiritual death means separation for all time and eternity to God Almighty in His place called heaven. That separation takes place in a place called hell. So King Saul is just the first in this long line of temporary human and thereby obviously flawed, meaning sinful kings. But he was always intended to be replaced by the eternal King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what all Christ followers understand and believe. Let me have you stand. The very meticulous and highly designed and intricately explained by God of the system of sacrifices provided a temporary stay of execution on all those born prior to the coming of the Jewish Messiah, Savior, Jesus. So what of them? I was actually just asked this question Friday night after our Good Friday service. So what happens to everybody in the Old Testament? (laughs) Well, if the incarnate sacrifice to end all sacrifices had not yet come, good question. So then how is it that anyone before Christ came would be saved from the fires of hell? That's one of the easier questions of Christian theology. People born since the time of Jesus, that would include us, 
are redeemed, they are saved, they are assured their place in heaven by looking back to Calvary and receiving what Jesus had done, past tense, on their and our behalf. Now, that doesn't mean everybody obviously does that. Jesus said, many are called, few are chosen. But now what about, again, the people born before Jesus' time? Well, the people born before the time of Jesus are redeemed. They are saved. They are assured their place in heaven by looking forward and receiving what Jesus' future tense would come and do on their behalf. If you are familiar at all with the Old Testament, you know that there were also many in the Old Testament, even among God's special people called Israel, who had not done this. In the New Testament, those who received the gift of salvation through Jesus by looking back to what he had done are called Christians. In the Old Testament, they were called the remnant or the Hasidim, the faithful ones, those even among the nation of Israel who were faithful to Adonai and Jehovah and the promises that he foretold through all the prophets and the signs and the wonders concerning that coming one who would take care of sin once for all time. Christians are saved by looking back. They were saved by looking forward. So everything in the Bible from the beginning, the book of Genesis to the very end, the book of Revelation, revolves around Jesus and with good reason. Because Jesus was not simply a good example to mankind. Such patronizing language is not merely offensive to God, it is blasphemous. He was not simply a wise teacher or a compassionate man or a faithful itinerant or on a mission to spread news of peace, brotherhood, and love to all mankind. All of those things are true of him. That is certain. But he came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world once for all time. And he was... And He is the sacrifice of all sacrifices of which all the sacrifices that took place in the Old Testament pointed. And in order to qualify as the Holy Lamb of God, Jesus Himself had to be sinless. He had to be be so unique and so different that He couldn't come through human lineage, a mother and father from earth, from Adam and Eve, because then he would bring sin already on his own soul. And when he was crucified, he would only be paying the price of his own sinfulness. And if anyone else had applied to be the redeemer of mankind, again, no matter who it is, no matter how long of history would travail, nobody good enough, nobody perfect Enough, because they come wearing the stain of sin inherited from that prototype family of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had to sin to become sinful. We come into the world already condemned. Man, this is this is the celebration service. This isn't too upbeat and too cool. We're not at the end of the line yet. Here, we're not at the end of the story. 
Here's where you start, not start, it starts all the way in Genesis, but here's where now the Apostle Paul in a very theological uh, chapter of, of the New Testament called the Book of Romans in chapter 5 gets very theological, explains a lot of things. This is what Paul writes. For as through the one man's disobedience, referring to Adam all the way back to the garden, through one man's disobedience, the many, that is everybody else in mankind, many were made sinners. And even so, through the obedience of one, that is Jesus, the many will be made righteous. The Apostle Paul uses the terminology later on to the Corinthians, talking about the first Adam, meaning at Eden, and the second Adam, referring to Christ. We became sinful by our original parents in Eve, uh, in Eden. We have the ability, if you will, the prerogative to become sinlessly perfect through the obedience and the sinless life and person of Jesus. There was only one who could satisfy God's rigorous and absolutely inflexible demand for total perfection. And that one is God himself. And so within that that mystery of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus, God the Son, willingly took on the role of Redeemer of mankind, allowing Himself to be born of the Virgin Mary, but not of father of earthly parentage by the Father's line, but rather from God on high, thereby skipping that, that line of sin that would be transmitted. So God comes into the world fully man and fully God, not half man and half God, but 100% divine, 100% human. And being 100% human, he would experience the world in its fullness and in all of its evil. And he had to live his own life sinlessly perfect in perfect obedience to God the Father. Which, of course, he did. God became a man and dwelt among us. That's what his name Emmanuel means, God with us. And the Gospel of John informs us of exactly that. A lot of theology bound up now here in four verses. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and then verse 14. In the beginning, the beginning means in the beginning. We're talking about beginning before even time. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus, God the Father, and Holy Spirit were all there at creation and participated in the making of the universe. Jesus is fully God. And the Word became flesh. That which was eternal took on human form, Jesus. And He dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This Jesus was no one less than the God of the Old Testament. He Himself declaring, in John chapter eight fifty eight and a lot of other places, but just pick this one out, where Jesus 
is addressing those who believe in him and those who don't believe in him and are, are engaged in another argument with him. And Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, you got to understand that Abraham preceded Jesus by thousands of years. And here he is now in his human earthly form, and he's saying, before Abraham was, I am. Strange grammar. Not before Abraham was, I was, but I am. Why is it in the constant eternal present tense? Because Jesus being God is eternal. He doesn't have a beginning or an end. And he says, before Abraham, your patriarch, before he was even in the world, I was here long before him. And he said, before Abraham was, I am. And I am is absolutely significant. Because way back in the Old Testament during the days of Moses, God mysteriously appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And Moses said, but God, if you're sending back to tell my people this and everything else, how are they going to know? How are they going to believe me? Who should I tell them sent me to them? And God says to him, you tell them, I am sent you. The eternal one. And Jesus now here of himself claims absolute identity with God Almighty. So either he was who he said he was, God Almighty, or he was an absolute lunatic. Later in John, Jesus is with those closest to him, meaning the disciples. And these guys now had been with him. They'd experienced him up close and personal. They'd experienced the miracles. They saw firsthand the raising of Lazarus from the dead and the blind healed and the, the, the sick healed and, and, and the, the feeding of the multitudes in 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water. They saw that all firsthand. And they're still just kind of flummoxed about who this Jesus really is because at sometimes there just seems to be so many contradictions of what they're experiencing in their lives with all of that and what Jesus has been telling them about what is in store for the immediate near future. And so they are beside themselves. And Jesus says to them again in John chapter 14, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receiving you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. And I love this now. He says, and you know where I'm going. And Thomas, one of the 12, the one fondly remembered as being the doubting Thomas, he says to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Do you have any comprehension of what that means or the history of religions of mankind? Jesus goes on, he says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. And yet another disciple is going to push it further. And the one named Philip says to him, Lord, show us the father 
and it's enough for us. Sort of like, you know, interjecting here my thoughts and what Philip's thinking is like, man, why don't you just come right out and say it? And Jesus is like, how many different ways can I say it to you and show it to you? He says, just come out. Just, just, just show us God the Father. <laughs> and here's what Jesus says to him. Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? And you know, there's a lot of uh, what I like to call horse pucky by liberal theologians and skeptics and critics of, critics of the word that say that, well, here, here's what Jesus meant by all that. That's from people living today and in, in many centuries after Jesus. All you got to do, though, is go to the original text into the time of the day. And how did his enemies understand him in the day? They picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy because he declared himself to be God. They didn't misunderstand. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Again, we have to get rid of this patronizing language and ridiculous excuses to deny the clear revelation and teaching of God's Word. Jesus has never been ambiguous about His deity. Friday night at our Good Friday service, I had everybody recite the Nicene Creed together. Part of that, just a snippet of that, referring to Jesus, says He is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of the same essence as the Father. Jesus, make no mistake, is no one less than the great I Am. Let's stand. Dr. D.A. Carson is possibly the world's most renowned scholar in the Koine Greek language. That's the language of the New Testament. He is recognized as being a meticulous theologian, a precise exegete. That means an individual who takes out of Scripture what is there, not forcing into it what he wants to be there. He is a scholar. He is a theologian. But he's also renowned for the fact that for all of that, he's not just this head who sits in an ivory tower in universities and seminaries and all, teaching us whippersnappers. But he was a practitioner of all that he believed and taught, meaning he was involved in his local church, doing the menial kinds of serving sorts of things that, you know, we all do or at least are supposed to do and be willing to serve however the Lord wants to use him. I had the absolute privilege of sitting under him. He was my exegesis teacher while at Trinity. And what we're going to see in this little three-minute clip or so is him explaining with such simplicity and such clarity that there has never been a change from Old Testament to New Testament as far as how anyone is saved before the Almighty sin-hating God who has not changed His ways. He's not lowered His standard. And joyfully, it is not on the basis 
of our, I do believe, I do believe, I just got to believe more, I got to believe harder, as you're going to see profoundly, elegantly, and yet simply. As I've been praying for Friday night and these services in particular, and especially this morning, is there is of necessity and quite legitimately an emphasis on what we would call the very, very uh, foundational message of the good news. That's what gospel means, the good news of Jesus Christ, that God has not changed his standard at all for perfection and only only those who are sinlessly perfect will get into heaven. And since nobody else could do that, God himself came and did it. And he says, I offer you my perfection. And furthermore, I am going to the cross and I'm going to take the wrath of God upon myself that your sin deserves, not mine. And then because Jesus himself was sinless when he was crucified and he was dead physically Death could not keep him dead because only sin keeps you dead for that is the consequence of sin. And so he rose from the dead. And he offers to everyone that gift of salvation that is received solely by faith. And so I've been praying for those who who don't yet know Jesus in that way that the Lord would speak to you very powerfully today. But I've also been praying for the seasoned troops, those who have been with Jesus. Maybe it's only been for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, or maybe it's been for several decades, or maybe even your entire life, as far back as you can remember. Sometimes we get overlooked in all of that, and all of this even. And yet, so I've been praying that, Lord, you would encourage and strengthen those who are there, who do understand that it's not what we do in our lives to gain points with you. It's because you have declared us righteous in our beloved Savior and substitute Jesus. And I think this video should be an encouragement and a refreshment of the the fresh understanding of what we have been living for perhaps weeks, months, years or decades, or our entire life. Let's watch. That is our motivation for living for life. Not so that we can hope to get entrance into heaven. First John five thirteen says, These things have I written unto you, referring to the Bible, that believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, not that you may hope or wish for, or flip the coin, but that you may know today that you have eternal life. And God has commissioned all who believe to have the words on our lips, to be ready to give account of the hope that lies within, and to go forth and to tell and share that good news because that is the only solution to all of life's ills and the trajectory on which this planet is going. When Jesus was standing in the public domain, yet again, those who were really annoyed by him, they were losing their control of the people and their power, the religious leaders of the day, the governmental authorities, and they ordered Jesus to stay silent, and they ordered him to tell those followers of his to shut up. 
And in Luke 19, Jesus answered and said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones themselves will cry out. Let me have you stand. One. If you are here today, and you do not have this kind of relationship with the living God, I trust that you're here probably because you came with someone or you at least know somebody from here. If you need to know more, ask them. They can tell you. They may go, I don't know, ask them. They can. Because the message is simple, though not simplistic. And if you want to receive Christ and know Him unto eternity, all you have to do is say, God, yes. Yes, I need You. Come into my life and take control. Lord Jesus, I receive that gift of salvation. And then a mysterious thing will happen. No, I don't mean you're going to start levitating or doing weird things. Well, you may, but that's got nothing to do with God. But God is going to put His Holy Spirit into you to now live with you and abide with you, to take you now on the rest of your journey in life, learning more about the love and the goodness of this God who gave everything to have you with Him in eternity I implore you, because no one knows what a day may bring forth. And I could give you illustration after illustration of healthy young people alive today and dead tomorrow, never seeing anything coming. And once you are dead, the Scripture says it is appointed unto man to die once, and after this comes judgment. Meaning, this is it. This is your only chance. Once you are dead, you don't come back as a flea, as a gnat, as a tennis ball or whatever with karma and all of that. Once it's dead, your chance is gone. So in the name of Jesus... I implore you to reach out to him and just say, yes, come into my life. Show me what this is all about. But right now, I do believe. And those of you who are followers of Jesus, stop being intimidated by a culture that is thriving on the lies of hell itself about what a Christian is and who Christians are. And in spite of it, love that person enough to give them the hope of eternity. And if they spit on it or they spit on you, just walk away praising Jesus that you've been counted worthy to suffer for His name. Father in heaven, strengthen your children in here today who know you and who love you, flawed and frail as we are. And I so pray for those who until this morning were hell-bound, and not even knowing it perhaps, right now by the power of your Holy Spirit, just as a blanket, drop that gift of faith upon them to say, Lord, I know, I know, I need you. Take over, take control. 
I want to be yours. Lord God, we pray in your great powerful name, thanking you for the resurrection and the hope of glory. Amen.